Well, you can join me in opening up your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark chapter 12. So, Gospel of Mark, you can find our text in the Bibles under the chairs nearby you on page 848. Well, there's two big topics today, marriage and the afterlife. What is marriage and why does it matter? And what, if anything, happens in the afterlife when we die? We hear many different answers to those questions today, and there's a lot of skepticism toward what the Bible has to say about those two topics today, right? The Bible answers those questions, though, in a surprising way. It answers them separately, and it answers them together. Here's what I mean. First, it answers them separately like this. Marriage is a, the loving union of a man and woman for life. That's what marriage is. It also answers the question of the afterlife or what happens after death. And it says the ultimate goal of the afterlife is the resurrection age. Jesus will return to raise his people from the dead to live embodied lives in a new creation forever. So that's how the Bible answers those two questions separately. But the Bible also answers them together. And here's how it does it. It says the ultimate meaning of marriage and the ultimate goal of the afterlife is to merge these two realities together. The Bible says that God is a God of love and history is a story of love. It's a story of God, who is love, sharing his love with his people, and marriage exists to proclaim this story of love. And all of history is heading toward an eternal future that we could refer to as an eternal marriage. When Jesus returns, raises his people from the dead, it will be for his people to know him, and to enjoy His love and His kindness forever. So the resurrection leads to the eternal marriage of Christ and His church. And this is at the heart of why it is so important that we answer these questions rightly. What is marriage? What is the afterlife? God designed human marriage, and He designed it to point to an eternal marriage. So marriage, human marriage, proclaims Christ's eternal love and loyalty to His people. It proclaims the message of God's love for His people. But here's the thing. This may sound strange to some, but it may sound intriguing. To some, it may sound beautiful. may sound ridiculous to others. But you will only believe what I just said if you know two things the Word of God, and the power of God. If you don't know that God's Word says this, and you don't believe God's power to do something like this, then, of course, you won't believe this. And that's the problem with the religious leaders of Jesus' day in the text we're about to look at. The religious leaders mock the idea of resurrection, and they want to kill Jesus. And Jesus says it's ultimately because They don't know the Word of God. They don't know the power of God. And so, 
The lesson of this text we're about to read is clear. If you pursue theology or understanding reality without the Word of God and the power of God, you'll go astray. You'll miss the point of the resurrection. You'll miss the point of marriage. So let's read Mark chapter 12, verse 18 through 27. And the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked Jesus a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. So they give the scenario now, verse 20. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her, and he died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and so on. And the seventh left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this word, and we receive it, and we continue the prayer that we prayed just a few minutes ago, that you would make us open and receptive to your word, and this word in particular. Give us hope, give us encouragement, give us conviction, whatever you need to do in our minds and hearts and wills and lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we'll see three lessons about the resurrection here. The religious leaders mock it. God's power transforms it, and God's Word proclaims it. So first, the religious leaders mock it. So Jesus has entered into Jerusalem just a few days before. He's done a number of things to show that He's the true King. It's provoked a strong response from the leaders, so they're attempting to trap Him one after another. Various leaders coming up to Him, trying to trap Him in His words, to find a reason to arrest Him, or to move public opinion against Him so that they can't arrest him and kill him. And so now the Sadducees come to Jesus with a question about the resurrection. And now Mark said at the outset, you probably noticed this, that the Sadducees, it's interesting, they're asking a question about the resurrection, but they don't actually believe in the resurrection. So the Sadducees accepted the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, Pentateuch, Torah, and they rejected the rest, and they didn't believe that life continued after death. They believed that the body and the soul just die together and that's the end of it. Now, that's different than a lot of other Jewish people in the first century at that time. The Pharisees, for instance, did believe in the resurrection to come. The Pharisees embraced the Old Testament as God's Word. So, the Sadducees are here, though. Don't believe in a resurrection. Think it's ridiculous. And they ask Jesus a question about it. But it's not sincere. They're trying to stump Him, make Him look foolish in public. So, they bring up a text from Moses that they think is inconsistent with a doctrine of the resurrection. And this is verse 19. So they say, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. So basically, if a widow's childless 
and the brother of her husband is there and available, then he will marry the widow. The goal is to give that first marriage a lineage and continue the inheritance. So the Sadducees embrace this as a law for Moses, and they think that if you believe in the resurrection, this would create a ridiculous scenario. So they, they put their puzzle to Jesus, and this is verses 20 to 23. You can read it with me. So they say there's seven brothers. The first one took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. So this is where Moses' law comes into play. Have the brother-in-law then marry her to raise up offspring. But verse 21, the second took her, and he died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And so they just extend this. You can extend it to two or 20 or 40. They take seven. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? Because seven had her as wife. So they're showing that the resurrection will create a ridiculous scenario if you take this seriously. Even if this woman only had two husbands over the course of her life, she'd be a polygamist in the new creation. So how does Jesus respond? Well, he says plainly, you are wrong. Then he gives the reason. Then he says, so you're very wrong. So he wants them to know they're wrong. Two reasons. Verse 24 is brief but loaded. Is this not the reason why you're wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. So he's saying to the religious leaders here, the two things that they specialize in, right? The two things they specialize in are God and Scripture. And he says, you don't know God's power and you don't know the Bible. Right? That's like walking up to an NBA player saying, you don't know about basketball. Right? This, this was their job. This was their strength, their specialty. And he says, this is at the point where they're weak. So let's pause here before we look at the specifics of how this is applied to the resurrection, because here's a general issue that Jesus has with them. They don't know the power of God. They don't know the Word of God. Those are two reasons why not just they went wrong theologically, but why many people go wrong theologically. So think about it. We drift into error if we reject the Word of God or the power of God. So first it happens when we reject the Word of God. Many who claim to be Christians, like these Sadducees were Jewish at that time, they claim to uphold the Bible, they claim to believe the God of the Bible, and yet they go wrong theologically because they don't actually wholeheartedly embrace God's Word. Rejecting the whole Bible as God's truth leads to error, because once you decide that the Bible isn't all true, then you're the one that is in control of deciding which parts you'll use to inform your theology. You get to pick then which texts you think are faithful, which really went back to Jesus, which really proclaim what's true. So today, some professing Christians and theologians claim to follow Jesus, but they reject the Bible's teaching on all sorts of topics. Especially today, there's an increasing rejection on what the Bible says about gender and sexuality and marriage because it's increasingly unpopular to believe what the Bible says about these things. Or they claim to follow Jesus, but they reject the Bible's vision of the sacredness and sanctity of human life. Or they say the Bible is filled with contradictions, but they haven't really studied it out. They're just rejecting it. Second, we can drift into error when we reject the power of God. Some claim to follow Jesus, but they don't think that God is actually powerful enough to do miracles. So they have a vague sense of following Jesus, but they don't think He really rose from the dead even. 
or they don't think God knows the future or anything about it, or that He's not powerful enough to stop suffering. He certainly doesn't have a plan for it. He can sympathize with us in our suffering, but He's watching it unfold before us just like we are. And many of us are tempted in other ways to diminish God's power. Do you ever feel like hopeless that someone will actually break their addictions? Maybe do you feel hopeless that you can have freedom from an addiction? Or that God can't convert someone and give them a new heart? Or that He can't change sexual attractions? Or that He can't heal someone and so you don't even ask Him to anymore? Or that He can't change your story of ashes into something beautiful? Or that He could never make you fulfilled and happy again? If we reject or diminish God's Word or God's power, we drift into error. And so Jesus says they don't believe rightly because they don't know God's power and they don't know God's word. And so these Sadducees mock the resurrection, trying to show that Jesus is an idiot for believing in it. And so Jesus now addresses both of those issues. He shows that the power of God and the word of God support the resurrection. So the religious leaders mock the resurrection and now second, God's power transforms it. So Jesus says they're denying the resurrection because they don't know the power of God. And it seems like he's taking that issue first. And so now he clarifies what that means. They assume that if the resurrection is true, which they don't believe, they assume that it would just be a continuation of life as we know it right now. But Jesus says they're underestimating God's power to radically transform life in the resurrection in the age to come. This is verse 25. He says, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. So this is Jesus' explanation for how the resurrection shows the power of God, which they don't hold to. It will not be just a continuation of the current age with marriage. It will be a radical transformation And they have no idea just how radical it will be. Now, let's just pause here to clarify a few things. Because we won't understand what Jesus is saying here until we clarify a pretty common misunderstanding. Many Christians today only think of life after death as simply going to heaven. Our bodies go in the ground. Our spirits go to heaven. So then life after death is living in heaven. Um, Obviously, there's some more ridiculous images that get traction in our culture, like people sitting on clouds playing harps, or people becoming angels and getting getting their wings or something like this. But many otherwise biblically sound Christians just think of eternal life as going to heaven. It's pretty common. So then they hear Jesus say, we'll be like angels here, and they think that he's confirming that belief, that He's saying that, yeah, we will be like angels. We'll be disembodied spirits up in heaven, like the angels forever. But that's not what Jesus is teaching here. Jesus is actually explicitly talking about the resurrection. He's talking about when he returns and raises his people from the dead and renews creation or brings in a new creation. There will be a new heavens and a new earth, and his people will live embodied flesh and blood bodies, though radically transformed, 
on a new earth. So the biblical doctrine of the afterlife for Christians is two stages. The first stage is death and our spirits going to heaven. And then the second stage is our resurrection to live embodied on a new earth. So look closely then at what Jesus says here. He doesn't say we will be in heaven, you know, like the angels. No, he says in the resurrection, we'll be like the angels in heaven. So in what sense will we be like the angels? Well, not that we will be disembodied spirits in heaven, but that in the resurrection on the new earth, we won't have marriage. In that sense, we will be like the angels who are in heaven. Does that make sense? So the reference to heaven is just locating the angels. It's like if one of you right now sneezed incredibly loudly, and I say, you're like my brother in South Carolina. I'm not saying that you're in South Carolina right now. I'm saying that you are like my brother who lives in South Carolina who has a ridiculously loud sneeze. In this way, you sneeze loudly. So if we just think about being spirits in heaven, we'll miss Jesus' point. He isn't saying we'll all be spirits in heaven. No, that's not resurrection. Resurrection is not a metaphor for being spirits in heaven. It's what happens after we go to heaven when Jesus returns and our spirit is reunited with our bodies and we live embodied and whole again as embodied humans in the new creation. So in light of this, what is Jesus saying? Well, he said, they don't know the power of God because that's why they don't get the resurrection. And then he says, verse 25, so they don't know the power of God, for when they rise from the dead, so you see he's explaining this, they don't know the power of God nor the scriptures because when they rise from the dead, they will neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. He's saying, you think people who believe in the resurrection think it's just this continuation of this age, of like life in this age, that people are living their normal married lives, going about business like normal. And that's, what you, that's why you think your little seven marriage conundrum is a problem for this. But you don't understand the power of God. God is going to powerfully and radically transform our lives for the coming new age. We won't be married. We'll be like the angels in that sense, because the angels are not given in marriage. There won't be marriage because there will be something powerful and greater in this transformed new age. All right, so this raises a question. How is the ending of marriage a powerful transformation? Well, Jesus doesn't say here, but when we see this theme of marriage in the Bible, we get it. Marriage itself is a temporary and symbolic institution. Marriage exists to point forward to an eternal marriage of Christ and the church. In this sense, marriage is actually like so many of the other things in the Bible that point forward to Jesus and His glory, especially as it's fulfilled fully and finally in the age to come. So, it's all through the Bible. You can think of various symbols, Old Testament sacrifices, point forward to Jesus as the true sacrifice for our sins. All those Old Testament priests point forward to Jesus as our true great high priest. The temple itself points forward to Jesus being the true dwelling place of God 
with his people in the new creation. Marriage then itself points forward to the eternal union of Christ and his people. And this theme is through the Bible. It's, it's one way to look at the story of the Bible. So think about the beginning. In the beginning, God created marriage by joining Adam and Eve together. Then through the Old Testament, he referred to his relationship with Israel as a marriage. And then he said in Hosea and other places, one day there will be an eternal marriage between God and his people. He says, I'll betroth you to me forever. And then Jesus comes and John the Baptist, the last prophet of the Old Testament era, points to him and he says, look who's here, the groom, John 3. The Apostle Paul said it most clearly in Ephesians 5. He said that marriage ultimately refers to Christ and the church. Christ as the husband, the church as the bride. And then at the end of the Bible, it says there will be a great marriage supper to celebrate the union of Jesus and his people. And then the new Jerusalem will come down, this city representing the people of God as a bride adorned for her husband, it says. So Jesus is saying to the Sadducees, you don't know the power of God. You think only in terms of what you see in this age, but there is something greater to come. Now, this may raise an emotional question at this point. Some of you who have good marriages or who have had a good marriage might be thinking or have thought, how is that better? I love my marriage. I can't imagine a better world where my marriage won't be a part of it. And so I want you to see a couple things. First, your marriage now exists to prepare you for that greater marriage between Christ and the church. Everything you love that's good about your marriage is a gift of God given to you as a partly a symbolic picture of a greater marriage to come. It's a foretaste. It's an appetizer of the greater marriage to come. And you'll be fulfilled in a greater way by the Lord Jesus with his people. Second, Jesus didn't say here or anywhere else, as far as I can tell, that you wouldn't still be close in some sense with your spouse. He just said that the institution of marriage ends. But the new creation is filled with true friendship. In the resurrection, our lives of friendship with other believers in Christ will continue forever. And so as we cultivate true friendship in marriage, even where some of the parts of marriage or even the sexual part fades away, the friendship gets stronger as an essential part of marriage, and friendship endures forever in Christ. And here's a word to those who are unmarried. Here's something amazing about the vision of the Bible in the future. In the Old Testament, marriage was the norm. But then in the New Testament, marriage and singleness are both held up explicitly and repeatedly with high honor. When Jesus says, for instance, in Matthew 19, that people should not get divorced except for sexual immorality, the disciples themselves said to him, well, then who can get married? This is hard, right? If you're saying this is one man, one woman for life, and you don't end it, no divorce except for sexual morality, not other reasons, who in the world can do this? 
And you know what Jesus said? Not everyone can. Some people will be single for the sake of the kingdom. Jesus himself was single in that sense. And then the Apostle Paul lived this single, unmarried life, and he said, it's great. It's an honorable life. It's a great way to make disciples of Jesus. And here's what's amazing then. It's not just marriage that points forward to this eternal marriage of Christ in the church, but the single life in Christ points forward to the marriage of Christ and the church. Because if you are unmarried, then you are being satisfied with Christ in a way that is a foretaste of the kind of satisfaction that everyone is to have in the future. And you are to pursue friendships right now, just like married, married and unmarried alike, pursuing friendships in Christ that are so deep and so rich and will continue on forever in the new creation as we enjoy the eternal marriage with Christ. So the question this verse asks us then is this. Do you believe in the power of God as it relates to the resurrection? Or do you underestimate just how great God can make the new age to come? The Sadducees couldn't imagine it being better. Just more of the same. And Jesus says, no, the power of God will bring marriage to its ultimate goal. So if you're married, married, don't cling to it too tightly. We hold on till death do us part. It matters that we are faithful to the end, but we don't cling to it beyond that. If you're happily, happily married then, cultivate, as you enjoy your marriage, a, a delight in the triune God and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're unhappily married, fight for joy in marriage, but hold on and have hope that you will enjoy yet the truest marriage in the new creation with Christ. And if you're unmarried, then you are already able to experience the joy of knowing Christ. You're not missing out on the truest, most significant meaning of marriage. And you can be content with him and with the true human friendships we have, uh, which our culture devalues in so many ways, but, with it would, but the Bible upholds with great value. And you're not missing out on something fundamental to being human. One day, no one will be married to one another. We will all be single in that sense because it will, marriage will give way to the greater marriage of the union of Christ and his church. And so if you're unmarried, you right now can display what it looks like to be content in that coming marriage. So Jesus teaches then that the power of God will transform the resurrection age into something better. And then finally, God's word proclaims the resurrection. Jesus said, they don't know the scriptures. And so he shows them what they're missing. He points to Exodus 3. So within their little mini canon of scripture, the only text that they actually believed in. So he pulls one from there, the story about the burning bush, Exodus 3, this is verses 26 and 27. He says, and as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And here's Jesus' conclusion. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now his logic puzzled me here for a long time, and it really wasn't until I slowed down this past week uh, that I was able to grasp it as far as I can tell. So one scholar on the Gospels helped me think this through. He noted that we have to remember that Jesus' argument is in the context of this debate with the Sadducees and the debate of his time. The debate was between the Sadducees, who say there's no future after death at all, no afterlife whatsoever, and between that and the other Jewish belief that the Pharisees believed in the two stages, right? There's 
spiritual life after death is your spirit goes to be with God in, the, in this intermediate state, and then there's a resurrection age to come. So that's the big debate they're asking him about. And Jesus is arguing for this two-stage view as opposed to Sadducees' no-stage view. So Jesus is saying, look, in Exodus 3, God is introducing himself as the God of these fathers. The very fact that God does this means there is something more for them. He has entered into a covenant relationship with them, and death cannot end a covenant relationship when God enters into it with, into you, into it with you. He's still their God, and if he's their God, then he's not done with them. They're alive now, and they have a future which Jesus doesn't explicitly mention here, but the implication is resurrection. So it's like wanting to prove then, so Jesus basically affirms that first stage. Look, they're still alive in order to affirm the package, the two stages, right? They're alive now, which means God's not done with them, so resurrection is coming. And so this would be um, similar to if you want to prove that someone is not still here in Indy, but is in Florida, you could do it by getting some evidence, some maybe photo, video evidence of them in Florida. Or you could say, look, I, I have evidence of them driving through Georgia in a Floridian direction, and here's a shot of their GPS that says, going to Florida, right? You make your case. They're not here. They're going to Florida. So it seems like that's a bit of what Jesus is doing here. He's giving the evidence to say, you're wrong. There's more for them and resurrection is coming. And of course, if they embrace the whole Old Testament, they'd see more, and Jesus could have picked a number of texts that were even more explicit even about the resurrection, because God progressively revealed the resurrection as he progressively re revealed a number of things over the course of time throughout the story of the Old Testament. It's in seed form early on, and then it's unfolded more clearly throughout the rest of the Old Testament. But they don't know the Scriptures the scriptures, they do know they don't know. And so they mock the resurrection. They try to make Jesus look foolish, foolish in public. And Jesus concludes, you are very wrong. You don't know the power of God to make the resurrection better. You don't know the Bible, which says right there, God has more for his people. So I want to wrap up by summarizing a little mini theology of what we learn about the resurrection here. Five quick summary points. First, the resurrection is biblical. It's taught all through the Bible. If someone professes to be a Christian, but they do not believe in the resurrection, then they do not know the scriptures. They deny what's plain all the way through. History is moving toward a great day of resurrection for God's people. Second, our ultimate home is not heaven, but the new creation to come. Very often we think of our ultimate destination as going to heaven when we die, but heaven isn't our final destination. It's more like an amazing layover that's better than where we are and yet on its way to the ultimate goal of the new creation. So our spirit goes to be with the Lord Jesus in heaven when we die in Christ, and then when he returns, we will then in the future be embodied, raised to him, but be embodied in the new creation. So we should think in terms of two stages. And I think it's not helpful to refer to all of this, the, both those stages, as heaven. Some do that. Some will say, I'm looking forward to heaven, and then they could articulate, well, what I mean is the first stage, which is heaven, and the second stage, which is the new creation, right? New heavens, new earth. But that seems to be confusing to refer to, to me, 
all as heaven because very often what comes into our mind when we think of heaven is heaven, right? The, the, other, the other realm up there. But there's a new creation coming, and the resurrection is coming, which is why they even refer to it this way as the resurrection, right? The age to come um, in that sense. And so even some really, really helpful books on this topic frame our eternal future in terms of just the word heaven. But I think that can be um, missing so much of the Bible if we refer to it just as heaven because we'll be confused right away. But we're going to heaven and then the new creation. So let's just pay attention. Let's have these two stages in mind when we hear things that don't reflect the biblical vision. So for example, if someone says something like, well, that person died and got their wings or that God must have needed an angel up in heaven. You don't need to be mean about it, but you don't need to say, yeah, that's right. Um, or some songs we sing. Many of them end, you know, they're, they're building and they end with us in heaven. And that's fine as far as it goes. I'm not criticizing these songs, but some of them, I'm just left looking for another verse um, for the new creation to come. So I think of I'll fly away. Well, that's great, but I'm also going to be coming back to walk again, and that's going to be really awesome too. So it's not the, the ultimate destination to fly away, it's to come back um, and be walking again. Or the song which we sang, which I love, when this poor stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, I'll sing the power of God to save. That's wonderful. Another verse would be great in my view, which says, and then even that tongue's coming up to sing again, and it's going to be great, because God's salvation will be complete, because death, the enemy, will be defeated, and I'm coming up again. Third, marriages will now be fulfilled in, or marriages now will be fulfilled in the marriage of Christ in the church. So all our marriages now are pointers to the greater marriage of Christ in the church. The worst marriages now are contrast to it. The best marriages are still just shadows pointing forward to the greater eternal marriage to come. Our marriages as marriages are not eternal. They're temporary pointers to the eternal greater marriage of Christ in the church. Now, this doesn't mean that spouses won't be friends in the new creation. It means that all our family relationships will be transformed. And the greatest part, which is true friendship, will endure. Fourth, Jesus has already launched the resurrection into our present age. I'm kind of amazed at Jesus' restraint for not just bringing that up with the Sadducees there. He's mentioned it already. He's going to die and rise in three days. He can just say, set your calendars for a few days. We'll have the conversation then, right? Um, because he was saving his ultimate argument against the Sadducees for a few days when he himself would rise from the dead, bringing in that coming age into the present, letting that resurrection age begin at his resurrection from the dead. There's where we see the power of God breaking into the middle of history to launch the new age in the middle of this old age. And Jesus did this to secure our relationship with him forever. We've all been like unfaithful spouses to him, ignoring him, taking his provision, and telling him, I'd rather you just stay in the corner of this house of my life taking his gifts and not giving him our love, and yet he still came for us. Ephesians 5, Paul puts it like this, husbands, love your wives, just calling husbands to take on the role of Christ in the church. And then he explains what this looks like, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, for us, that he might sanctify her, 
having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Why? Future. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, like a radiant bride, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So the new age has launched into the present to prepare us for that coming age, and this shows us his heart. Finally, we then enter and enjoy this new resurrection age of the eternal marriage by faith right now. Jesus rose from the dead, and he launched this age into the present, and now he also gives us new hearts, makes us spiritually alive. We're waiting for our resurrection body. Some of us feel that agony of waiting more than others right now, but in the meantime, he is renewing us spiritually. We are sp spiritually risen from the dead, waiting for the completion when we'll be physically raised from the dead. And in the meantime, then, we trust him, we're united to him, and we cultivate our relationship with him because we're being prepared for a marriage to come. So cultivate, delight in Jesus Christ. Cultivate the kind, if, just picture, if you don't have a picture, what a delighted marriage would be, an ideal picture. That exists to point to Christ in the church. So cultivate the kind of warm welcome of the Lord Jesus Christ into your everyday life so that when you enter to that more fully in the new creation, you're not completely thrown off and confused and surprised. It's more of the same, ratcheted way up, but more of the same. So the two big topics today, marriage and the afterlife. And in Jesus, we find that the answers to both of those really important questions that people are asking today the answers are more profound than we might have thought. You can answer them separately. Marriage is one man and one woman for life. The afterlife is two-stage. Heaven when we die, new creation and the resurrection. Or you can answer them by bringing them together because our future is an eternal marriage in the resurrection age. And that's where we're going. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that you show your eternal love to us in this picture of marriage. So we pray that we would not set our hope in marriages in this age, but on the marriage to come. And we pray that you would cultivate in us a longing for that. In Jesus' name, amen.